we have to look beyond just marketing to stoners and things like that. And as you said, one of our main things is we want to make sure that during the holiday season that you want to buy our cannabis product between anybody else's because it already looks like a gift, you know, and that's kind of where some of our main fan base customer base is It's between women and older men that like cigars and things like that. And they see this and it becomes a really good gift for people. You're listening to, to be blunt. The podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I'm just going to say it now, apologies in advance, it is beginning of November and it's about to go fast and furious. I can't even like, I don't even want to say it out loud. I'm going to blink and it's going to be Christmas. With that said, I'm going to do my best to keep things operating as usual for y'all because I know not everyone will be attending MJ BizCon here in a couple of weeks and Therefore, you don't need to be subjected to the chaos of my life, but just putting it out there and asking for some grace as I fly by the seat of my pants, literally. Uh, To put a few things on your radar, one, I get asked a lot about job opportunities in the industry, and personally, I feel like things are really sporadic. They're either being posted to the company site, and so you have to know the company, who you want to work for, and go look at their job board or what their open listings are, or you go to like a general job board where you have to sift through to find cannabis-specific opportunities, and that's obviously not a perfect solution, but someone put Vangst, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, on my radar. This is, by the way, not sponsored, just trying to provide you a free resource. I believe it is V-A-N-G-S-T dot com, Vangst dot com. And they're all completely, like a wholly, like completely cannabis specific job board. And there's some amazing like recognizable brands on there, as well as up and coming brands, really anybody in the cannabis industry who is hiring. And you should be able to see cannabis specific jobs, which of course, some are specific to the state of course, since cannabis is state by state, but there are some remote jobs. So definitely check that out and tell your friends who are looking for job opportunities to go to vanks.com. The second thing to put on your radar, elections. This episode airs on November 7th. I don't know about other states, but I'm a Texas gal. And if you're in Texas, you can vote November 8th, which is tomorrow. I am not here to tell you who to vote for, but rather want to remind you that we are voting for our governor, our lieutenant governor, our ag commissioner, amongst other things. Hemp in the state currently sits under our ag commissioner. And while we just really need better overall cannabis laws in Texas in general, so do your research, take the time, 
go vote. It is an important exercise for you to do that as a citizen. It's your right. And really, it's to help make your local community better. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know, yes, we want to talk about federal decriminalization, federal legalization. But the reality is things happen on a local level, on a state level, on a city, on a municipality level. And so the more that you can get involved in local politics, the better it's going to be to help influence cannabis laws in your state, city, or region for the better. Just a side note, after elections, the next major milestone in Texas will be our 88th legislative session. So be on the lookout for more information on that as we inch closer towards January 2023 when it kicks off. Now onto a few interesting headlines. Cannabis Business Times reported recently that, quote unquote, the DEA acknowledged that cannabis seeds are legal to sell. So what does that mean for the industry? The article goes on to say that in January of 2022, an official at the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, which is the DEA, quietly confirmed that yes, cannabis seeds fall under the legal definition of hemp, and yes, they can be sold openly and without criminal liability. Now, I bring this up because I kind of had this realization a couple months ago. I had a friend in particular. I was looking to buy some seeds, and he sent me to a website, and they said they were hemp seeds, and I said, I don't want hemp seeds, you know, wink, wink. And he said, they're not, don't worry about it. He said, this is where I buy my seeds from. So of course I was curious. And then just going to trade shows and kind of coming across and seeing people have seed businesses. They're large brands that are selling seeds. I'm like, how do you sell this on the internet? Is that legal? So obviously per the DEA, yes, in fact, it is legal. And that's just crazy to me that it's legal and open to be sold in some capacity. I mean, it makes sense because it is just a seed, but at the same time, like why aren't more people doing this? So I really just wanted to put it on your radar as food for thought and see if any of you are in the seed sales or genetic business because I would love to talk. So like I said, food for thought. The next headline is local here in Austin from Fox 7 News and they are reporting on quote unquote medical marijuana in Texas. State considers adding more license holders for a program. Of course, as a Texan, this caught my attention. And as y'all know, I like to keep y'all abreast of what's going on down here in wild, wild west Texas. So here's the scoop. This is, of course, a little bit more nuanced. And I really just want to highlight these things because they're really important to my market and my operations, as well as just informing you guys of what the hell is going on here and when we can expect you know, perhaps adult use recreation in the state of Texas. So we only have three licenses issued in Texas for medical marijuana. And of the three, only two are operational. I don't know, it's about the third license. I hear they're trying to sell it, but they're definitely not in business. They're basically holding on to the license. And both of the operational ones are in South Austin. And if you're familiar with Texas, we are a very large state. And so basically those two operators in South Austin service the whole state. I'll also mention our program is kept at 1% THC, so we are not allowed to sell flour or concentrates, and we are limited to certain qualifying conditions from a patient perspective. It is pretty limited, and PTSD is the most broad condition that people could qualify for. Now, these two license holders are only allowed one location, and like I said, they're both operating in South Austin. It's not like Colorado or California or any other state with medical where there's maybe multiple dispensaries in every city. 
you know, patients have accessibility, they have choice. Nope, in Texas, medical marijuana, you're limited to shopping with two different dispensaries and they're both in South Austin. And Texas is a big state, so to service the whole state from South Austin, it's really logistically challenging. And so basically this article said that the state public safety commissioner heard testimony from the chief of regulatory services to potentially expand licenses. And then in the article, which I'll link in the notes below, one of the license holders is quoted saying they're not for license expansion. Like, what? (laughs) Of course you're not. Like, you're not for license expansion because that infringes on your ability to monopolize the state. Sorry, I said it. Not sorry, actually. So to give you guys more context, you know, these licenses are vertical integration required. They cost $400,000 every two years on top of rent, on top of other operational costs. And I share this to reemphasize that as a Texan, I do not believe Texas will see adult use until we have a better medical program. And the progress for that will come up in the next 88th legislative session. So to anyone who thinks Texas is going to swing wide open anytime soon isn't paying attention. I always hope I'm wrong, of course, and that things change sooner than later. But politics is politics. So learn the game, y'all. Okay, that's enough of my rant. Now on to my guest, Jarrell Wall. Jarrell is the creative director and CEO of Gentleman Quinn's, a Denver-based blunt brand known for their high-class, big-ass blunts. It's kind of fun to say, high-class, big-ass blunts. So I originally met Jarrell because he has been a stan of the podcast, a massive fan, loyal listener. And, you know, like I said, I encourage you guys to reach out. You never know where it might end up. But he had been DMing me, you know, sharing some of the content, just really engaging. And, of course, um, on one hand, it meant a lot to me. And on the other hand, I was curious to see what he was up to and become more familiar with him and his brand which led me down the rabbit hole of learning all about Gentleman Quinn's and fast forward to the Cannabis Marketing Summit, which was put on by the Cannabis Marketing Association. Shout out CMA. They're an amazing organization. And they had an event earlier this year that both Jarrell and I were speakers at, which led to us getting a chance to connect one-on-one. And on one hand, he is just super knowledgeable and super friendly and gave me some of his product. And like that just warmed my heart so much. Like I just like can't get over the hospital hospitality of this industry and of Jural in particular. And the other, we got a chance to really like connect and talk. And it was just so apparent how much hustle this guy has and how much he knows. And I knew bringing him onto the podcast had to happen so we could learn some of his tips and tricks and be inspired by his journey. So this episode was inspiring for sure. And I want to emphasize the theme of this episode, which is rooted in hustle. No one is making you get up and make yourself better. No one is forcing you to learn more. No one is requiring you to roll your sleeves up and work early and stay up late. But that's the hustle. That's the grind. And truthfully speaking, there is no magic pill that takes you to the top. It is all about what you put in is what you get out. And Jarrell emulates that mentality. And it's refreshing to see someone succeeding after putting in the effort while also acknowledging there is still more to go. So like I said, we get to touch on his business, how he differentiates his products, what got him in the industry, which I always love learning from my guests. And I just really vibed with his attitude. He just is someone who is like going after it. And the kind of like final note I'll share before we get into it is the information exists. This podcast is one tool. Google is free. YouTube is free. 
Like go find on LinkedIn, make connections, like go do it. I encourage you to do it, but not until after you listen to Jarrell's episode. So with that said, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Jarrell to the show. Oh my God. Well, today's going to be a great conversation because we're talking all about you and your business. So let's kind of start there. I know what Gentleman Quinn's is with the lens of what products you bring to market, which is a blunt. I know there's a little bit of a history of how you got connected to Gentleman Quinn because Gentleman Quinn is actually a person. I'd love to just hear, you know, the, the story, the inception. Also, as you know, so much value comes from these introductions where people can really start to see themselves in your shoes. You know, how did you get to where you are? What were you doing kind of before you got into the cannabis industry? Uh, what brought you to Denver? How long have you been in Denver? You know, kind of answering some of those questions. So whenever you're ready to dive into your, oh, for sure, your inception, (laughs) we're ready. So that's a lot right there. So let me, how do we we start this? Well, like I'm from Indiana. I went to college in Georgia and I used to work in television. I used to be a television producer, a sound engineer, published photographer, published graphic designer, all of those different things. Hey. But I came to Colorado because I had an affinity for cannabis. Most people, most of the experience I've had in terms of traveling, free travel, friends that I've met all came from the cannabis community. I actually got my first job in television by way of mentors that introduced me to the cannabis culture. So I have a really a big affinity for it. So uh, 2012 happened. I had a buddy I went to college with. Him and his wife moved out here. They invited me to come out and visit. And I was like, oh, man, if I get any chance to move to Colorado, I want to do it. I had no intentions of being a business owner. Had no intentions of, you know, really even working in the industry. I was just wanted to be around it. Uh, but in 2014, you know, I had a transition with my, my job and I had an opportunity to move from Atlanta. I had some options outside of uh, some even more stable options outside of Colorado. But I was like, if I get one opportunity in Colorado, I'm going to take it. So I had an opportunity to work at another television company as a kind of a freelance to be full time position. Uh, my buddy who was living out here introduced me to a few of the guys that worked at a dispensary and they were like, well, you work in television. Can't you do marketing for us? And I didn't. I, I've always been an illustrator and things like that, but cannabis really opened up that uh, lens of creativity for me. So I was really just doing, you know, a service job in television, you know, working with voice of artists and things like that uh, and broadcasting and stuff. But once uh, they just said, if you could do it, you know, we could give you this gig. I was like, sure, I'll try it. So Really, that's when I got introduced to the industry, worked for a company called Coronado Medical back during the medical days. They had me doing magazine ads, product labels and things like that, social media, you know, early on. So that's kind of where I got started into the industry. And really, uh, I'd say probably three or four weeks after starting that job, the general manager of that company, his name was Austin and another butt tender who we now know as Gentleman Quinn. We all just kind of formulated together a product that we thought would sell out of that dispensary. What we noticed was during the medical days, there were way more dispensaries. It was more dispensaries on every corner. Uh, so it, it was it was no not much differentiation between products. And, you know, as they had me doing marketing, I'm over looking at every type of magazine to see what can we do different than what's being done in cannabis. Uh, at the time, everybody, all, all they would really do is just put photos of their logo and just a weed plant. It wasn't really much difference. It, it wasn't the conventional thinking was weed sold itself, which at the time it did. But, you know, as you're thinking of this as a full industry from the previous industry where you just had guys bringing trash bags of weed and selling it at the store, as regulation started to come in and more rules started to come in, you kind of start to need to see this 
industry more as a actual industry that needed actual marketing, actual differentiation and things like that. So we thought, well, we could bring if we could have a different product into the store, you know, we bring more folks into our dispensary. And we noticed that the pre-roll market at the time was really just a throwaway product. If you had trim, you had extra biomass uh, at your grow. You could just put that in the joint. And you just put it on the shelf for like two or three dollars and whatnot. A lot of times folks are just giving out joints for free. When I came from Atlanta, we had a lot of propaganda when legalization happened from the West Coast. So we get on Reddit and they show like wheat vending machines. They show wheat barbecue sauce, all sorts of stuff that didn't exist. So when I came out here, there really were a lot of different products. You had flour, but the biggest products were like goo pans and edibles. And I was like, you know, this is kind of weird. You would think the first product that I have the biggest influence would be either a joint maybe a blunt, you know, I slowly realized that the reason there weren't any blunts is because tobacco was expressly forbidden. And obviously a blunt is usually tobacco cast with marijuana in it based on the way that you enjoyed the cannabis base before legalization happened. So it kind of let us know that there was an opportunity to do something in that realm, as well as an opportunity to do something within the pre-roll realm. And that's kind of where we just got started. So we formulated, you know, without going into the crazy long story, you know, me, Gentleman Quinn and Austin went on a team building, uh, a team building exercise. You know, we really just went to a, a, a mountaintop in Boulder. And we were like, we're just going to smoke and just learn about each other. And Gage, uh, Gentleman Quinn, he rolled us a blunt and we thought it was a tree twig because <laughs> we come from a legal space. You know, we have like uh, blunts that are like pencils. So he had he's from Colorado. He rolled this gigantic blunt. And we were like, OK. If this is real and it was, then this should be something that we investigate how we could put this on shelves because no one was doing anything more than like two or three and point two or three grams, point five grams, nothing really big. Because, again, these are throwaway products. So we were like he already had a specific amount that he puts into them. You know, we didn't formulate the two gram thing. That was exactly what his process was. So we were like, OK, that kind of fell into our laps. We called him Gentleman Quinn because he wrote us the blunt. So that fell into our laps. We were like we could just name it at that. And then the very next day when we were kind of like uh, figuring out a way to present this to the business owners, Austin told me we should call this the high class, big ass blunt. And I was like, I have no questions about that. This is exactly it. So the universe is kind of formulated up for us to make this product. And really, I had the idea that it was for me to kind of, you know, herald this to the public. You know, I've gotten so many of these pieces in my toolbox that, you know, we could just let it fall away and just have a cool night or we could actually see if we could push forward with it at, at a certain point i believe it was about two or three weeks later after we already figured out some packaging ideas and whatnot we had a, a whiteboard we brought it to the business owners of that dispensary we, we asked them hey you guys mind if, if we try out this product you know you guys provide the flour we provide the manpower uh the marketing and all that type of stuff that i was already doing as long as and they said you know you guys can do it as long as you know, the store keeps running, you know, this doesn't take away from the actual responsibilities of the business, you know, try it out. So we tried it out. Uh, we put about 40 blunts on the market. I guess I should preface this by saying we actually don't use tobacco. We actually found a hemp wrap manufacturer that we use. We saw a lot of things on the internet. We tried a lot of different things, but we found our own manufacturer that gave us a small amount of sample wraps and whatnot to see if we want to try it. And we use those to do our first run of blunts. And that was really our proof of concept is the way we saw it. So we we did it. We did about 40 blunts at the time and they sold out within a week. And then the business owners were like, uh, 
you know, how about you guys try it again? We'll just double that. So we doubled it up again. Those sold out. And in between that time, we had a few product business owners that would come into that dispensary to try to sell their products. Uh, and this is a time like now you have a lot of uh, you got leaf link that you could do it independently. You have sales folks that come in. But at the time it was so new business owners would come in. So we met different uh, licensees with the red badges and stuff, and they tell us about their products and they see our blunts in these nice little boxes right next to their products. And they, what the hell is that? And we tell them like, this is a, this is what we just do in the store. So one guy actually sat us down for about a couple months, tried to bring us on under his license. And that really gave us the roadmap as to how to get licensed. The deal didn't work out. It was kind of a predatory deal at the time. And, you know, I say this in a lot of podcasts and whatnot, so I'm glad I don't say the guy's name, but I will say three or four years later, the dude did ask us if he wanted to buy his license off of him and whatnot. So there was a nice little story at the end of it, <laughs> but the guy asked if we wanted to bring our product under his license. The deal didn't work out. We wasted a lot of time. And, you know, at that time, the dispensary was kind of going through a transition. Recreational was coming in, which was taking a lot of customer base from the medical market. So they weren't allowing us to use weed anymore. So it really was like, well, we could just let this die out of line or we could try to make this a serious thing. And really, that's kind of what we took it all serious. We did a crowdsourcing campaign to get our licensing costs because the previous guy that wanted to bring us under him, he showed us how he got it done. Uh, he had a lot of money. We were all younger guys. I believe I was 27. GQ was 22. I think Austin was 25. So we were all really young, but it was we were naive enough to think that we could do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we basically went on the website and, you know, there's a practice that I still do today, always going on to the state of Colorado uh, Marijuana Enforcement Division's website to see what's new on there. I will just read everything and just kind of try to understand compliance because I remember that dispensary we had, they had a compliance person we could ask questions to, but they paid her a lot of money. So I was like, you know, I could possibly do compliance. I mean, I could learn it. So I'd Learn compliance, learn the processes of, you know, getting the EIN number, getting the LLC articles incorporation, uh, getting your uh, trademark or that's a different thing. But, you know, getting uh, your, your trade name done by the Secretary of State of Colorado. We did all those things really incrementally. And then basically, uh, you know, we saw that, well, the state says it only costs X amount to get a license. Well, that's all we need. That's all we thought. We didn't think about uh, rent. We didn't think about properties. We just thought the license cost this. We didn't know anything about licensing for cities and things like that, but that was all to come. So basically, we did a crowdsourcing campaign where we got a lot of help early on. It didn't really go well because a lot of crowdsourcing websites, they didn't allow cannabis to be on it. Now, you know, we're in Colorado. Cannabis is everywhere. So we think the whole world is like us. But we forget as soon as you leave <laughs> the square state is still prohibition everywhere at the time. So the website didn't uh, many of the crowdsourcing websites didn't allow us to use their website. One website did, which we eventually used, but they wouldn't highlight us at all. So we wouldn't, wasn't able to get much traction. So basically, uh, you know, I was going out in the middle of the uh, downtown, just plastering posters up. I had internships back in the day where I worked the radio, doing street team work. So I did that. I took that, that, that approach. So we just went around, plastered the, the, the posters up, went and talked to all the different dispensaries about what we wanted to do. And eventually a website or I guess it was an older tech cannabis company called Mass Roots. They emailed us and they said, we see what you guys are trying to do. We want to blast you guys out on a newsletter. And really from that interaction, you were able to find our angel investor. He had the newsletter. He reached out to us and said, I see what you guys are trying to do. I'm a tech small business owner in Denver, but I have an affinity for cigars. I, I live in Nicaragua from time of the year and whatnot. So I'm a cigar guy. So I see what you guys are trying to do and what can be done here. Uh, so let's talk. And really, 
that's kind of where it all really started for our full licensing journey. He kind of coached us through finding uh, real estate, figuring out compliance in terms of meeting lawyers and things like that, questions to ask, runway money, uh, just the whole early stages of a small business and whatnot. And all all he asked us to do was learn cannabis because I'm not learning cannabis. If you guys learn it, then we could do business. If you guys are just slacking, then the conversation is going to end. So it really was up to us to, you know, do that compliance work. You know, I was up hours after my full-time job that I eventually got back into in television. I was hours in the evening reading about compliance, reading about the laws and things like that and trying to gain myself up to it. I saved up some money at one point to meet with a lawyer, to ask them questions and whatnot. Uh, only had one hour to do it and all my money was going. But basically, it kind of got to a place where the lawyer was asking me questions. <laughs> so I was like, OK, so I, I think I know how to do this. And it really is just uh, it came to my angel investor finding a property for us that was an old 140 year old building next to his business. He knew the landlord because we went through a lot of uh, consultants and things like that to try to find property. And if it's tough to find property now, it was still tough back then. But back then, you know, they had, you know, you could buy a license for two million dollars or something like that. Or, you know, you could have rent for seventy thousand dollars a month, some crazy stuff that they would do to cannabis owners. So he was like, well, I know a business owner that has a building that hasn't been used for a long time. If you guys could build it out, you know, we'll let you guys run it. So that's kind of where we got started at. And I was like, if we have the opportunity, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna make it happen. And I, I wish I had photos to have the building look before we actually renovated it, <laughs> but it took us about three years to get it right. But that's kind of where we are today. We're downtown Denver right now, probably the only like manufacturing company in the area where we are. Uh, and, you know, really is, it's, I guess I abbreviated the end, but yeah, it took us about three years to get fully licensed. And, you know, here we are. <laughs> that is such a cool story. I like just want to express how what I've observed about you just in like our limited like in-person interactions, but especially like what I've seen on social media is just how knowledgeable you are. But it is at the investment of like everything you just outlined. And so like, I just want to commend you for putting in the work because that's I just was watching a YouTube video. I, I'm like you. I'm always trying to get better. I think people listen to the podcast and they want the magic bullet of like, oh, this is what's going to make my business successful. And it's like for all of these conversations, you don't see all the hard work, the after hours, Absolutely. the investment, the talking to people, saving up your money to like talk to a lawyer, like fucking kudos to you. But I was watching this YouTube video before because try to get my YouTube game up. And the guy literally said like the key to, to success is consistency. And Absolutely. like, it just keeps like being reinforced of, you know, we're not any better than the next person or anybody who might be listening to this. But I think what differentiates us and especially when I'm again observing about you is like you are just literally hustling and grinding and maybe there's a little bit of naivety in there too like you were saying just like being so young and like okay we're gonna just like roll up our sleeves and do this but I think that is the attitude you have to have to some extent in this industry it's not you know tiered information like oh I'm Absolutely. not a lawyer so I I can't talk about regulation or compliance it's funny you say that though because I find I might know more than some people who are licensed lawyers in our industry. And it's just because I really care and I really want to invest and understand the politics and the nuances and things are changing so fast that like, again, everything you said, I'm just like, yes, Jarrell, like, yes, like, that's the, that's the ish. So I'm like, mic drop, everybody, like, that's what you need to be doing. That's what you need to be like inspired by because it's those actions that accumulate over time that give you that platform and give you that runway to be able to have your brand 
you know, go in the direction that you want to go. It's not by coincidence. It's not by right. chance. It's not by, you know, I got lucky today. It's like, no, I've literally like been putting posters up. I've been, you know, grinding, Absolutely. reading these subreddits. And, and I can tell you, I, I, you know, I tell this story from time to time with different podcasts. And I feel like when I listen to it back from times, you know, like you said, there's more that goes into it than I can even express because I don't even think about it. But this we've been doing this since 2015. So it's been about seven, eight years. And there was many times because, you know, I worked I was working in television when I was 22 years old. You know, right before I even got out of college, I was I did nine internships. You know, so when it came to that, I knew how hard it was to get those jobs. So when it came to cannabis and then you realize that there's still a stigma out against cannabis. So when you start working in cannabis, a lot of folks won't give you a job. Now, I'm black, so it's already tough enough in America to get a job. But when I worked so hard to get a career job that I kind of transitioned to cannabis, you know, there was many nights where, you know, for for instance, uh, I wasn't always forward. You, early on, you didn't always see my name within the Gentleman Quinn's thing. We tried to be behind it because, we you know, we had to keep working. But there was many nights where it was just like, man, if this door doesn't open, it, that's not the end of the world. It'll be, hey, this, that's the end of it. And every time we pushed a little bit, it just kept going forward. So there was a many, many struggling nights and whatnot. I'm from Indiana. I'm from the Midwest. I'm not from out here. I don't have family here. So it feels like an island sometimes, you know, and uh, there's been plenty of uh, points in this process where it was like, man, if this doesn't work out, I don't know if I'm gonna be mad about it, but then it keeps working. And it's just like, well, if it gets me to this next step, then I just got to keep pushing. And then that's just kind of where we are today. And, you know, this year has been the most growth that we've had. So it's just like, you know, I've, I'm a proponent of the consistency, 100%. Absolutely. No, it's it's just, you know, imperative. You have to be consistent in anything you're doing in this industry from social media to staying on top of regulations to networking to how you choose to show up. And so, yeah, I just I really appreciated getting that like personal, you know, testimony of just like your journey, because, again, I think those are some of the things that really are the most inspiring and empowering, you know, nuggets for people to be like, ah, like that's, that's the message I needed to hear today to like go trudge on and like keep going through things. So I want to kind of start, not start because we've been talking, but like for me, I want to go back to something you said and kind of like start at the top of like breaking down what is a blunt? I think the culture of cannabis, like blunts are very traditional. If you, you know, were ever in high school and had friends who had like cannabis. Like I had all the guy friends who, you know, went and bought blunts and then we cut the tobacco out and we put the cannabis in. And even like, you know, I'm, I, I say I've been consuming a long time. I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert by any means, but like backwoods and kind of like getting into a little bit of that stuff. So like to me, I one appreciate like kind of the ingenuity of, Hey, like people sell pre-rolls, like why don't they sell blunts? And then from a market perspective, I don't know if I see other people selling blunts and you were touching a little bit on, so I don't know if I caught it fully, maybe why that was the case. Is there some regulation around nicotine products being sold in dispensaries? And like you said, yours do not have any nicotine. You're using hemp wraps. So absolutely. Like, I just want to understand a little bit, like what defines a blunt um, and how have you changed what a blunt is and how do you feel it's like yeah, so um, well, you touched. Sorry, you touched on the success though of like launching the product and selling out, and then reintroducing it in the same dispensary, selling out. That kind of gave you the momentum. So again, like I think consumers know what a blunt is, but 
again, from a product perspective, maybe they don't. So I'm just curious, like how you enter that in the market, how it stands against like a pre-roll size-wise. Are there any regulations around how much cannabis can go into an end product? Because I know like edibles are dictated. You can't exceed like 100 milligrams. milligrams. Yes. Like are there certain THC caps when it comes to pre-rolls? So I'm just curious to kind of like dive into that side of it. Yeah. So just to start, yeah, within Amendment 69, 64, 64, 64, it was since the inception of the recreational market, it was already outlawed that there could be no tobacco within any products. So I imagine that early legislators, early lawyers and guys like that, that brought, you know, these things to the fold, they kind of knew what a blunt was. And they said, well, we just can't have that, you know, especially when I guess initially everything was kind of like, hands away we kind of want to we, we know that we're going to get a lot of pushback from prohibitionists we're going to get a lot of pushback from different industries that our customers can be you know taken from so we want to be as hands-off and as safe as we can be so the first thing they did was say tobacco cannot be in any products and that's still in our rules today and it's a good rule i mean hey we don't need the tobacco industry infiltrating uh, the marijuana industry i mean it is what it is but you know Within the culture of cannabis, you know, one of the earliest ways and one of the easiest ways to, you know, consume illegal cannabis was to find wraps to put it in. You know, you're not going to just, you know, smoke just the bud. You got to put it into something and whatnot. And, you know, obviously there were like papers and things like that, zigzag papers and stuff. You could put them in and make joints and stuff. But by and large, a lot of folks, if they didn't get glass and, you know, I was in Atlanta when. Florida outlaw glass, they arrested on and all that nonsense back in the day. So, you know, if it wasn't glass or joints, it would be a, a cigar, cigarette or something like that. Or, you know, just a, a blunt wrap backwood out backwoods, uh, white owls and things like that. People would just use and whatnot. So that became its own subculture within itself. Obviously, I like blunts when I was when I was younger, but, you know, I got asthma. I ain't going to lie to those people. I mean, I, I don't like the scratchy throats. I don't like the black lips and all that type of stuff and the bad smell. You know, that was Initially, what we what we thought when we found these wraps, we were like, it doesn't give us any of those things. We could taste the flower now. We're not tasting tobacco and whatnot. When we let it out and relight it, you just taste the, the flower, you know, as opposed to just tasting the wrap. So that was kind of, you know, the issues with having an actual tobacco blunt in the industry. I know in some places, I believe in California at, at a time, they did have like Cuban cigar blunts and whatnot, but you can't do that in Colorado. And I think as nationwide legalization happens, it's probably going to be the same thing nationwide. And again, you don't really want to have the element of tobacco, uh, big tobacco getting into the industry in a way that could bring tobacco into products and whatnot. So I guess I'll wrap that all up. Uh, in terms of what a blunt is, you know, obviously, like I said, when illegal, the culture was had flour everywhere and whatnot, where you can find flour and whatnot brick flour and things like that you want to put it into something so you just went to a gas station and got you know a zigzag wrap a white owl or a backwood and whatnot so that's what a blunt was those products are called blunts so that's what that is and you know we just felt like in the industry the things that were being highlighted when i got into the industry didn't really seem like cannabis to me it seemed like something completely different it seemed like they're trying to shoot things under the rug you know obviously nowadays we talk about social equity they didn't really talk about what the drug war was that wasn't even a discussion to a lot of people it was just we're just happy we got weed so let's party and i just kind of always thought that was bullshit if i'm being honest with you so between that 
in the things in the culture that I think that needed to be heralded to the industry to make it more inclusive to people. I think the blunt itself needed to be highlighted or at least a joint, you know, just a, a pre-roll product that was a pre-roll that we all knew and loved. So it, it felt as though that was something that was missing. So, and you know, we get folks that came from out of town to the art dispensary that would ask for it. You guys got any blunts? Oh, we don't have any blunts, but we got all these uh, pins that, you know, got, cannabis goo in it and we had to explain what that what extracts were and how that all happened and what butane was before you got the solventless stuff now and you know it kind of freaked people out edibles freaked people out back in the day and they were just trying to find flour i'll just roll it myself and some folks couldn't roll it so you know pre-rolls had a market blunts had an interest and whatnot so we kind of saw that from our interactions directly with customers and things like that so that's kind of where the inception of the idea was and then just for us we saw that there was an there wasn't a lot of creativity in the industry. You know, everybody had the same packaging. They just put different stickers on it. And packaging, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different. You do, you definitely got companies I shout out like Wild. They have dynamic packaging. It's awesome. But back in the day, it was just all the same little plastic tubes and stuff. And we just said that's another availability for us to change up and do something different. And that's kind of what we came with the cigar box style, you know, kind of try to show respect to the customers, you know. We don't want you just having a bunch of plastic tubes on your table looking junky because people just didn't throw them away back in the day. And they probably still don't now. But we were like, this is a valuable marketing space that if we had something interesting here. They just keep it. It'll be a talking piece. And then folks will want to buy more and things like that. So I'm kind of jumping all around the place. But hopefully that answers some of your questions. No, it didn't answer so many questions. I appreciate that because, again, I think the thing that I take away from what you just shared, like I said, in my, you know, very haphazard personal story being somebody who has consumed, you know, especially being in a state that is still majority illegal for cannabis, like that was the culture. So that's like what you had access to. It's like you go to the gas station, like what looks like I can insert cannabis into. It's either me, Absolutely. you know, taking a bobby pin and poking out. Oh, my God, I remember poking out all the what's all up? the little nicotine out of the cigarette. And then I would stuff the bobby pin you to get the up? filter out. And then sometimes you're like, well, maybe I want the filter. Maybe I don't want the filter. And then, of course, right. having the other friends who would go get wraps. And that was just like what you had to smoke in. I never really... I guess, like, thought about it from your perspective of what you just shared in terms of, like, what then entered the marketplace. Like, it's true. Right. I guess there were zigzags, but, like, I I think the whole concept of, like, raw, like, raw having, like, cones pre-made, like, that's definitely, like, fairly new. But this, like, you know, kind of interesting swap when legalization, I'm using quotes for the listeners, or, you know, medical started really, like, taking on in some of these states, Colorado especially leading the way. It's, like, None of the cultural products made it, but we're still smoking, but it's same, same, but different. And so I just thought that was so interesting that you highlighted that because it's true. It's such a familiarity for, you know, kind of like cannabis consumers prior to legalization, but you don't right. really see it in the marketplace as much. And so I'm curious with that, like, how do you, obviously it's different. So it's a standalone piece. I wouldn't say that it's, comparing like if someone comes in and they're you know wanting a pre-roll for example like would you say that that is the same particular type of customer i would say there's maybe some overlap but also i think maybe like what you sell based on like you said your packaging which i definitely want to get into a little bit more because it is beautiful and it is very standalone but like how do you stand out to somebody and like attract them are they people who are familiar with blunts? Are they people who are looking for something like maybe as a gift to give? Is it more like a premium piece? Like how does your price point stack up to other products on the market? Like I think the point I'm getting to is obviously there's 
saturation in the marketplace. There's limited availability of shelf space. Consumers are getting smarter, but let's be real. There's, again, so much going on. They're a little like over inundated with choice. So it's like, how are you guiding somebody to be like, buy my product? So there's a lot of questions here, but I will answer your previous question that I didn't answer in terms of caps on uh, cannabis. Oh, yeah. Obviously, there's in recreational, there's caps on edibles and things like that and caps on you can have in vapes and whatnot. But we're kind of looked at before we kind of started doing what we did. Like I said, pre-rolls were kind of looked at as an afterthought product. So within the rules of Colorado, they weren't even considered a product. They were just considered, you know, something that an allowance that a cultivation can do. So when we came into it this year recently, they, well, the top of this year, me and my business partner were part of the pre-roll rulemaking and whatnot last awesome. year. So they didn't even see it as a product. So basically we're able to, you, you can see 10 gram blunts and things like that, or 10 gram canagars and things based on what economic cogs you're doing, if you want to do that. Now, when it kind of comes to flower and economics, it kind of goes really high. So a lot of folks don't do a ton of like uh, gigantic joints and things like that, but there's really no cap on how many grams and things like that you can have in a pre-roll up until the amount that people can buy. And I believe out here is about one ounce per purchase before it kind of gets into like some sticky waters. So you don't want to do an ounce <laughs> pre-roll. Like an ounce so and pre-roll, it would be a lot. Yeah, like that's exactly. a lot for some. That's like a party pre-roll. A lot of pre-rolls. Absolutely. So in terms of our customers and things like that, it does seem as though that there's a lot of saturation in the market. In some places, in some portions of the market, there is. But there aren't a lot of different licensees out here. When it comes to saturation, I, I see it as a lot of folks want to be dispensary owners. There aren't a lot of product uh, differentiation out here. And people do want to become product owners and whatnot. They usually just become edible owners or, you know, get into the vape pen thing or they get into topicals and stuff like that. So a lot of the times pre-rolls have kind of been like a really good landing spot for for us because we saw that it really wasn't a lot of people doing it. Cultivations have the allowance to do their own and they just put stickers on them and whatnot, but they really don't do the full R&D of making their own product. And as you said, you have cones out here and on every cone you see about 90% of the product cone products that you see, you see a little filter that says raw on it. These aren't raw products, you know, so that just goes to show you that folks aren't really taking the time to brand their own thing. They just find the easiest thing, popping in some, you know, some trim, maybe putting in some keef, maybe putting in some concentrate to boost the potency and things like that. That really doesn't give me a good experience. I wanted to buy, create something that I would buy because I'm a cannabis consumer and I didn't see what we had on the market. So I want to get something that I knew I would buy. So basically, in terms of how we market to people, the first thing is, uh, if you are allowed to get shelf space, because that's a tough thing right now, what are you going to do to differentiate yourself? And we immediately did that when we first started, because again, like I said, when we started, we did it as a proof of concept. You don't really get that in cannabis. You don't really get the allowance to do your your own products unless you have your own vertically integrated business to see what customers like. So we have the opportunity that a lot of folks don't have. We already, we were starting a dispensary. We had fan base. We had to the availability to ask people questions, what strains that they would like, what they don't like. And we were able to get the feedback initially before we got licensed. And then what we saw was, you know, we had these boxes that were initially, the boxes changed so many times and we're actually about to change them again. So not to date the podcast, but we're about to do a brand new change at the top of December and whatnot, and it's going to be amazing. It's always getting better. Uh, but basically, we 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 hand 
painted our own boxers, hand stained them and sanded them off and whatnot. We found stickers and whatnot to put on them and whatnot. And, and you know, with the tagline and just the way the packaging looks, they immediately have shelf differentiation, visibility and whatnot. So folks are already going to gravitate to what is that that says high class, big ass blunt? That's awesome. Then they realize, oh, it's a blunt. I don't see blunts here anywhere else. I see a bunch of infused uh, joints and things like that. But, you know, for the most part, what we tried to do with my experience in early cannabis marketing was we have to look beyond what's already here. We have to look beyond just marketing to stoners and things like that. And as you said, one of our main things is we want to make sure that during the holiday season that you want to buy our cannabis product between anybody else's because it already looks like a gift. You know, and that's kind of where some of our main fan base, customer base is. It's between women and older men that like cigars and things like that. And they see this and it becomes a really good gift for people. So, again, hopefully I answered some questions. No, you totally answered questions. (laughs) I'm like just learning so much. I think there's I spend the most time in Colorado. So I feel like in terms of markets outside of my own here in Texas, like what I know it's Colorado, but there's still obviously so many things that are, it's just like, it, it's a whole other state. And so like, there's things I just don't realistically know. I'm not a licensee in the state, so I don't know what it's like to actually bring a product to market. I can hear, I can ask questions, obviously, but so like some of these nuggets, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Like even just the tobacco idea, that makes sense because obviously you're not seeing those products, but you know, just kind of like the realities of how it actually impacts your business. It's it's very prevalent because that's, you know, kind of the inspiration for what type of, you know, category of product you're bringing to market. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. On the inside of a blunt is obviously flour, and we've been talking a little bit. I mean, you know, you highlight certain pre-rolls, for example, might be made with different trims of the flour, different qualities. You know, there's shake, there's trim, there's tops, there's mids. There's also infusions. People are putting concentrate in there. They're putting some goo or something. They're adding in some keef to make it special. What you see everything. Yeah, like what <laughs> what do you like feel inspired to do with your brand? Like what are you currently doing and like what is the opportunity in the market? Because you're not a cultivator, right? So how do you kind of source is it seasonally, hey, we're gonna buy this much flour at this quality and then we're gonna make this amount of, you know, product, or is it more I don't know systematic where it's like every month I've got a different strain and we're releasing products like kind of walk us through how you navigate that component because I imagine there's people who are like I would love to start a brand but I think I would probably need like to cultivate my product and that's not true you don't need to be a cultivator certain states maybe like in Texas where you have to be vertically integrated or Florida but in Colorado you don't have to be vertically integrated so you can be a license holder and you still need to source your flour so how do you make those relationships? How do you define what's good? You said you're a consumer. So I know a little bit about what your answer is going to be. It's obviously like, what do I want to consume? So I have to make sure it's like this quality and that and the other. But 
I'm just curious how you start to like navigate that. Do you work with the same farm? Have you changed farms? Is it indoor versus outdoor versus greenhouse? Like what makes you excited and like what makes your consumers excited? See, this is why I like this podcast. You actually asked the real oh, questions. And I will say to people, like uh, in terms of the business of Gentleman Quinn's, I started in the industry doing marketing for a dispensary. And then I eventually became the CEO of the group between the group of guys that I work with and whatnot. And we have a lot of hats on. So hopefully folks gleam on to the fact that we're not only talking about marketing on my favorite marketing podcast, we're talking about operations. That's right. We're talking about logistics. We got to do everything. So it's not only just a one thing. And I tell folks all the time, you know, no one's crying for cannabis on us. Everybody thinks we have a million dollars, which we don't. Everybody Everybody thinks that it's fun and we're just smoking weed all day like no one's crying for us. So we have to do all the hard work just because it, it needs to be done. And we, we really have to build these brands as though we're competing with a Pepsi. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, so there's a lot of sides to this. When we worked in the dispensary, the first thing I really noticed was because there's so much vertical integration that is forced into the different markets. You have to have a lot of overhead and you have to do things that. You have to basically run four or five businesses at once. You know what I mean? A lot of folks are good at doing one thing. If you want to start a dispensary, you might be good at being a cultivator. You don't know anything about hiring. You don't know anything about employment. And that may be the crux of your entire business. So we, we noticed there was a lot of overhead issues with dispensaries and cultivations. So what we basically said was if we're going to do this and we only need a license to do our rolling and whatnot, well, let's use that to our fullest advantage. So that allowed us to go to every cultivation in the state and just pick the flower that we liked and, you know, get the right price point and things like that. And like you said, it's about relationships and what what got more complicated was testing and whatnot. So when you got testing, they already test their flower before it goes into the market in some ways. And then we have to come back and retest it to make sure that it's good enough as a product to go to consumers. So that makes it a little bit more complex. So what we used to do was we go to a bunch of different places. We try to get a bunch of different of the best strains that we liked. We have what we call a tasting table, whereas it could be between three to five or seven of us all tasting different strain samples that we've gotten from places and, you know, just kind of seeing what we liked and what we didn't like. Because what I did notice early on was you do these joints and they're all trim inside. Sometimes I get a headache. Sometimes I wouldn't get stoned at all. And it just seemed like it was a big jip. Now, by and large, a lot of places just gave you joints and stuff like that. But when it comes to like being a full product, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, the, the consistency and the experience was at least, you know, homogenous between people who buy them all the time. So basically we have a, a system where we, you know, get samples. We have everybody tell us what they think of it. And we come to a consensus. Uh, we use only full bud. We don't use any popcorn. We don't use any trim just because of the issues that I just explained, you know, consistency issues or, you know, not even actually getting stoned. So we go to be, we actually put the money in to get the more expensive flour and whatnot. Uh, and w- what we see with a lot of brands is, or at least in pre-rolls, because cultivators actually make a lot of pre-roll brands out here, they do 15 different strands and whatnot. So there's not really, it's too much choice. So what we do is we do about four strands a quarter. Uh, so we could just have the consistency. We could have the quality assurance over what we are, we're buying and whatnot. So we don't do a ton of different variety. We make sure that, you know, we market it. So you know that when you get a, a, a Gentleman Quinn's product, that you're going to get something that was touched by everybody in the company that we know what we're giving to you. So it's just not, we're just popping out a bunch of different things. We didn't do the infused route, which, you know, economically right now works for us because it's way more testing that goes into that. And by and large, you know, I'm, 
I don't, I don't want to say anything to, you know, disrespect any hash like uh, users and whatnot, because eventually gentlemen Quinn's will have a hash blunt. But I'm not the biggest hash guy. I just I, I feel like it really boils down to what the flower is. And if your flower is good, you're not going to have a problem. But because a lot of folks are using trim, they're using all these different type of, ad, uh, you know, variations of the, the, the flower itself. The quality is low, so they have to add things in like, oh, I'm going to just do a snake of oil or butter or something like that. And that's going to boost potency up. Oh, I got 45 percent potency. Not worrying about the terpene quality, not worrying about all the different things that would give you a good right. experience. So because of that, we just kind of want to stick with something simple. And that's the whole thing about Gentleman Quinn's. You know, we have dynamic looking packaging and things like that, but it's simple. You know, we don't have a crazy graphic design on our stuff. We don't have crazy blunts. It's a really simple, basic thing that gets the job done. You can light it, relight it. It's going to be the same experience every time. And again, it's about respecting the customer. You know, we don't want to, you know, glom on a million different things just to have you buy a product and then you take it home and it's not exactly what you were expecting, you know, and that's, that's part of it as well. So when it comes to it, you know, we, we have to have relationships with different grows and things like that. You know, we go to every cultivation we we meet with, we sit down with the master growers, we sit down with the business owners, we tell them what we're doing, we show them the website, we show them, you know, we present them with our samples of our products and let them know that, you know, we're not just taking anything you give us and whatnot. And there's been times when we went to places that gave us a great tour and whatnot, but we didn't buy anything from them because their quality wasn't up to our standards. So that's kind of what we try to bring to the market. And, you know, in terms of those relationships, I believe growers and things like that really appreciate that because they see that we're not just, you know, just taking anything. We're, we're, we're taking the boutique feel that they put into the flower when they grow it. And we're actually, you know, giving good care to how we present it. And we show love to those guys in our marketing and whatnot. We let them know where we buy the flower from. We, we highlight those guys. And, you know, it's, it's a really good ecosystem because that's kind of what you have to do in the industry right now. Yeah, like what you just said about, you know, yes, there's these like, I don't want to call them frivolous necessarily, but like, you know, kind of like at, I don't even know if I want to call it additives. I'm like, wait a minute, these words are a little strong. But you know what I mean? When people are adding things to their products to sell it, you know, it is, I like to remind myself, really myself, I remind myself, everything starts and ends with the flower. So what is like that purity of just like good bud? And how do you highlight that and showcase that? And especially with flower-based products, I think it is interesting because there's a little bit of a time where like an observation I make right now about the general market across the nation, but especially in Colorado, just from some recent trips, like a lot of people are promoting live resin, like live resin is like really popular. And so I could imagine it's really easy to be like, oh, let me just go do a little drizzle of live resin because maybe it's a marketing thing and it'll stick and and be something that I can, you know, kind of cash on in this moment. But there is also just like the the boundary of like not wanting to actually, I guess like deflate your brand because that's not really the direction that you're trying to go like you don't need to kind of like jump on some of these uh, these like popular trains because like you're trying to build something that's like independent and speaks for itself and so I love the highlight too of you know just building these relationships with these cultivators and and just trying their products and trying to see like what's going to make the most sense for your brand and and then the marketing side too I was going to ask about that so I'm glad you touched on that some brands, obviously, in different markets, I'll say, too, you know, don't always want to highlight where the bud came from because it takes away perhaps from their brand. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, that's right or wrong. I think there's, you know, different ways to skin a cat to get there. But, you know, when you can kind of capitalize, maybe you're using flour from a cultivator that has some brand equity. How do you 
leverage that. They're obviously excited to be in your product. You're excited to use their brand too. It's like, how can you like lift each other up and kind of grow your audience at the same time? So I just think it's a really interesting, you know, kind of symbiotic kind of relationship that people should be more considerate of. Absolutely. And a lot of uh, different, you know, not even just cultivators, but a lot of brands in general don't think they have to do a lot with marketing. They don't want to pay for somebody to do marketing for them. This is what I see in Colorado. You know, they they don't really want to pay for it. And they just kind of think, you know, you could just put some stuff on social media from time to time and you're good to go. You could just pay for a magazine ad that you get from, you know, maybe a a marketing agency or something like that. And they're good to go. And they don't really want to do the engagement. They don't want to do the consistency. And that's it. So, you know, we see a lot of cultivators that we work with realizing what we're doing in terms of the consistency. We make our own content. You know, we kind of do everything kind of in-house. So they kind of see that and they see that there's an advantage into working with us. Like I said, we highlight those guys. And it, again, it's a symbiotic relationship. And it's kind of what all we could really do in the industry as we have so many advertising restric- restrictions. Out of all the things that you do from a marketing perspective, out of all the channels, given your you know background and history of kind of coming from a little bit of like, you know, the television world where it is maybe just the timing or just the nature of the industry, I think a little bit more guerrilla marketing, how you promote things, radio shows, you know, kind of like magazine. That's obviously shifted presently, I would say, like those are still maybe, you know, interesting channels to be considered of. But in the myriad of things that you can do or like levers you can pull as a marketer, what are some of your top channels or like experiences like that you think have really like moved the needle for your brand that you've invested in? So it's it's a lot, uh, a lot of variety. So I say the the most important that people should pay attention to is just like being in store and actually having butts in their education so they can talk about your product to customers directly. That's most important for me, what I see. But I think in terms of just branding yourself to folks that come from out of the state and they, they don't live in Colorado, social media is obviously important. I hate to highlight these spots too much because they don't give us a lot of leeway, but obviously Instagram is pretty big. Twitter and things like that. I've been doing small things on TikTok, but I've actually seen a lot of boosts and a lot of uh, encouragement from LinkedIn. Those guys actually, you know, they don't kick you off. They don't send you weird little emails in the middle of the night, take content that you had from months ago and say, this violates A, B, and C. They actually put you in newsletters and actually boost up what, what the business is. So LinkedIn's been pretty good, especially from a B2B type situation, meeting actual other professionals and things like that, or just folks that work in professional settings that can't necessarily do the cannabis thing outwardly, but they still want to see what's going on. They don't do social media because they're older, all these different types of things. But, you know, I think it's important to, you know, actually get out there and meet people, meet the customers and have folks understand which product is. But I also think it's really important to build your brand, actually have, you know, what, what does your logo mean? What is, what, what are the colors that you allude to when you have branding that goes out there and whatnot? How does these, how do these things come back to, you know, what your brand is and whatnot? Uh, and I'm an illustrator. So from time to time, I do my own illustrations that, you know, other brands just can't do, you know, it's a lot of things that we do as gentlemen Quinn's. A lot of folks just can't copy and whatnot. And that's what I'm kind of, uh, you know, really fortunate of because, if it was any other product, they probably would have redone, you know, a, a gentleman Quinn, something else in, in another state. But it's so hard to do what we do because we do everything in house. And, you know, just the different varied skills that me and my business partners have, it really works out in that direction. But I guess just to answer your question, it's just a myriad of things. And, you know, Twitter's decent, but Instagram sen- tends to be one of the bigger ones to get engagement and, you know, just doing pop-ups, meeting with the business owners and meeting with butt uh, is pretty important. Yeah, such a double-edged sword. I always am like, 
when I get asked that question too, people expect me to, on one hand, not promote social media because it's so toxic for us. But on the other hand, I'm like, but that's what the customers are. So, you know, maybe my post gets taken down today, but maybe it doesn't. And maybe that is a chance for me to get in front of my target customer or get, you know, a message out or get a piece of branding out. And so it is. Absolutely. It's hard not to like lean into those platforms. And I just know so many people have so much challenge with it, but it's also, you know, kind of I just always say it's par for the course. So like our Facebook is down right now. I couldn't even tell you what we posted. It's like three days. And I'm like, when the fuck did I even get this violation? And so that just shows how often I'm paying attention to Facebook. But knowing that they're intermingled with Instagram, it's like, okay, well, did I violate Instagram or did I actually violate Facebook? I don't know. I just want to post. Let me do what I need to do. So yes, it's, it's an unfortunate uphill battle, but... I think you said it right, though, which is music to my ears. I love branding. I think branding is so important. It's why, you know, people pick Coke over Pepsi. Sorry, all you Pepsi lovers out there. It's an insuperior product compared to the Coke branding. I think we can all agree on that. I, I wouldn't be right from being from the Midwest <laughs> if I allowed that to stand. All right. Now, I lived in Atlanta and I had to deal with this for many years, but Pepsi is our drink. Really? I thought Coca-Cola <laughs> was headquartered in Atlanta. That's what I'm saying. In the Midwest, Pepsi's a drink. In Atlanta, I just have to deal with Got Coke, it, got Coke, it, got right? it. I see, I see. Midwest is Pepsi. Well, okay, as a Texan <laughs> in the South, Coke is superior. And if I'm being really honest, Dr. Pepper is my preference. So <laughs> that shows you, you know, where I come from. But it is that kind of mentality. And I know I talk about it a little on the podcast, but it's so important for the listeners to just understand what makes someone like grab a product off the shelf. You know, did you have a connection, like you're saying, in in store where you got to experience that product and meet someone from the brand? Did you see something on social media that aligned with some value that you have or some branding that really, you know, looked cool to you? Was it a packaging that you saw? Was it, you know, what are those tangible things that someone is identifying with your brand and you need to kind of think of that ecosystem that you're creating, whether it's, you know, how you speak, what people see, what they smell, what they taste, like those are all you like giving your brand, you know, the best like platform to just like go exist to shine really. And I just... And it's really about the the, the taste the people in the business have because a lot of the times it's just like you know whatever works it's homogeny but if you actually have taste if you actually have like a point of view specifically to you and your brand that brings people on you know if it's just like i'm gonna just do what works where well, there's no real point of view there you're just going for you know what brings sales in and a lot of times that just kind of kills your business eventually which is what we've been seeing this year you know a lot of brands have been changing hands and things like that and doing the general thing we're just going to make if we're making products, we're going to make every product. If we're making, if we have a dispensary, we're going to make the dispensary like an Apple store, like everybody else did. You know, I'm I'm always really surprised that you know we don't have specific types of dispensaries. We don't have a hash dispensary only for hash. We don't have you know a, a dis- dispensary medically only for topicals and things like that. Everybody just wants to do everything, so there's no real point of view to it. So you know, there's a, a lot of runway. You know, hopefully people do these things in the future. We'll see. I like that point. I think it's always good to challenge you know the status quo. And I think the only way that we're going to see change in the industry is by being the change. You know, it's so cliche, be the change you want to see. But I think the industry puts up so many parameters that prevent us from going in certain directions that what space we do have to exist in is like ripe for interpretation. And so I just, you know, really commend you for kind of swerving 
you know, the other direction when everybody else is is going on the road straight ahead. And it's obviously proof that you really value what opportunity you have to be able to make an impact in the industry, build a beautiful brand, connect with your target consumer. And I'm just so glad I was able to have you on the podcast finally. So thanks for being here. I appreciate you. And I I would like to add, uh, one of my favorite episodes of yours is when you had Jane West and Olivia Alexander, because they really talked about some real things that happened in the industry. Now, obviously, John shoots my homie. Uh, There's a lot of folks that I've I've seen on the podcast. You know, Steve D'Angelo was a really good one, but I really love the Olivia Alexander and the Jane West one because they really talked about some real issues in the industry. And I really hope folks go back and oh watch, my God. This. watch this one. Thank first. you so much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Everybody needs to first like hit play on this when this goes live. If you're watching on video, thanks for being on video. If you're listening when this episode comes out, thank you for being there as well. But I appreciate, you know, you just, you know, blowing some some good good vibes my way because it is such a difficult industry to exist in and I try to create a safe space for people to speak transparently my whole goal and kind of vision as as I'm sure you can you know understand and relate to and you've observed just from listening but maybe someone's listening who's new hello the podcast is called to be blunt I want to speak about real challenges, real issues. And we're not all going to have the same perspective. And I think we've kind of lost that, if I'm being honest, a little bit in America these days. And I think that it's healthy to have discord because you want to get better ultimately, I think, right? Like we want to grow. We want to implement better practices. And how can you grow if you're just doing the same thing or listening to the same people or, you know, subscribing to the same message? So thanks for for saying that. I I tend to be a little bit more like uh, pragmatic about things. So I try not to be too high or too and whatnot, but when he when they were on the podcast, I'm like about to punch you all. I'm like, they're saying the shit that needs to be said. Yes. So I really appreciated those. Absolutely. And Chanel Lindsay, she's pretty good as well. So I appreciate you. Shout out to all these people. They've been so great. You're now among the ranks and you're one of them. And I'm just like seriously so grateful. Like you're so knowledgeable. Thanks for openly sharing and definitely everybody gotta go check out Gentleman Quinn's. I was gonna ask too, you're just in Colorado. I don't want to say just, but Colorado is like home base. Are you looking at getting into other markets? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, obviously, like I said, I didn't want to date the podcast, okay. but I already did say we're about to change our packaging up. So you're about to see more dynamic packaging here in about a Hell couple yeah. weeks uh, in 2022 towards 2023. But, you know, to date the podcast, we are actually having a, a, a an expansion plan to Oregon. We have some really good friends out there that, you know, the the, the stars have aligned perfectly at the end of this year for us to kind of make that transition for us to become a small MSO in our own way. So we're about to do a small launch there within Q1 of uh, 2023 uh, in Oregon, starting in Bend, Oregon. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Outstanding. <laughs> massive congratulations. I know it is such an exciting time and it doesn't come without a lot of sleepless nights trying to orchestrate everything and make sure that it's, you know, signed and dotted and X'd and owed. But Absolutely. Congratulations. Such a pleasure, Jarrell. Truthfully, you're just like, I'm inspired. I I feel like I just learn so many new things all the time and so grateful to have you in my corner. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. This is one of my favorites and I really appreciate it. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi. 